we do pray that you would breathe on us breath of God and that you might make us your own. And Holy Spirit, that you would work mightily uh, through prayer and through the preaching of your word today that we might see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, growing up, uh, my family loved vacation Bible school. I wish that I could say it was because we were faithful, uh, but the real reason is it got the kids out of the house, and my family appreciated that. And so we were farmed out, whether they were Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, we were sent away. And I often look back very fondly because God used those VBSs in a powerful way in my life. But I often smile at the tendency that we have to domesticate some of the most terrifying stories from the Bible. Things like Noah and the ark, uh, how we make that all nice and cute and cuddly and we decorate children's rooms that way and we have VBSs that celebrate Noah and the ark as if Noah was there with a koala on one arm and a baby chimpanzee on the other and it was some big snuggle fest. But in fact, you have to believe that Noah is praying, Dear Lord, please do not let that which lurks beneath the decks to eat me and my family tonight. Uh, it was no wonder they wanted to get off the boat. Well, this story this morning in Ezekiel 37 is one of the most terrifying stories in the entirety of the Bible. But you may, like me, remember VBS? Dem bones, dem bones going to walk around right? Hear the word of the Lord. Uh, children singing that, that's really, really frightening. But the issue is that it is frightening and it is terrifying because it's meant to be. Because what the Bible addresses at any given moment is a matter of life and death. And so let's look at Ezekiel 37 uh, this morning, either in your worship bulletin or uh, on page 724 in your pew Bible. Uh, Ezekiel is prophesying at a time when the people of Judea have been exiled and they're dwelling in Babylon. And God primarily gives Ezekiel a word to them to say, look, that which seems like it could never live, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to restore you as the people of Israel and you will once again worship in Jerusalem. And you see that spelled out in verses 11 through 14 at the tail end. But what I want to look at this morning is actually the deeper underlying spiritual principle at work uh, that is true not only for the Israelites in exile, but is true for you and me too. God takes Ezekiel and transports him to a place where there's a valley or a plain uh, that is covered in bones. When I was in Rwanda in uh, last summer, I was walking with Sam Mugisha uh, at a polytechnic college that they had started. It used to be an old army barracks, and they had dug up some land to put in some sand volleyball courts for recreation. And there, out of the ground, I saw it, a femur sticking up out of the ground. And Sam said, yes, we find bones all the time. This was a killing field during the genocide. And so for me to see that one bone, you can understand 
Ezekiel being taken back by seeing an entire, what seemed to be a battlefield strewn about with bones and, and not just bones, but dry bones that were not connected as skeletons, but as a result of vultures and other animals of prey tearing the bodies apart. The bones have been so strewn about that you don't know which part belongs to what. And they'd been there such a long time that they had become dry. And God asked Ezekiel, can these bones live? Well, uh, Ezekiel, being a good and faithful guy, says, well, Lord, you know. And then God answers his own question. What does he ask Ezekiel to do? Preach to the bones. Preach to the bones. And just when things couldn't get terrifying enough, he begins to preach and there's a great sound and rattling comes together and the bones begin to connect. And before his very eyes, they begin to take on flesh. And all of a sudden, they're not just disparate bones strewn about, but they look like real people. And there now on the battlefield is no longer bones, but bodies lying everywhere. But he preaches, and yet we see in verse 8, or I'm sorry, yes, in verse 8, if I can find it, and I looked, and behold, there were more sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Now, what was it that Ezekiel was preaching to them? The very word of the Lord. The Lord said, look, I'm going to give you the very words that I want you to speak to these bones. And so Ezekiel begins to preach to the bones with the very words verbatim that the Lord God had given him. And he did that faithfully. And as a result, they took on flesh. And yet, if you looked closely, you would see they were just as dead as they were when they were strewn about as bones. They might look like they've made some progress along the way, but whether your bones are strewn about or whether you're a corpse on the, on the ground, you're dead. They're not degrees of deadness. You know, I'm always amazed when I go to a funeral and, and somebody, you know, goes by the, the casket and says, she looks good. Really? We're not supposed to look good. And so now Ezekiel gazes on people that have faces that he can remember and seem to have a kind of personality, but there is no breath in them. And so all of a sudden, Ezekiel stops preaching to the bones and he turns to another audience. God says to him, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. They'd heard the word of the Lord, but Ezekiel goes from preaching to praying. 
He begins to to pray, and this word here that is often translated in the Old Testament as wind or breath or spirit is the word ruach. It is that which it refers to. And it's not just any spirit, which you could easily translate it as, but it is the very Holy Spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim that hovered over the face of the waters at creation, the breath of life that gives us life, not only in our mortal bodies, but gives us new life in Christ. And it is only this breath that can move us from death to life, from darkness to light, from bondage to freedom. And so the Lord God commands Ezekiel not just to preach, but to pray. Pray that the very Holy Spirit of God will inhabit these bodies and make them live. For apart from my spirit, they're still dead men. J.B. Taylor, the great 19th century bishop of St. Albans in England, said about this passage, what preaching by itself failed to achieve, prayer made a reality. We see this here in Ezekiel 37, this understanding of how the Holy Spirit works in giving us life. Through the faithful preaching of the word, through prayer, but primarily through a work of the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit uses the preaching of the word and prayer to give us new hearts, to give us new life. And our passage from John chapter 11, we see a parallel situation where Jesus comes before the tomb of Lazarus and he says, roll away the stone. And that great line from the King James Version, they said, no, Lord, he's been dead for four days for he stinketh. I think that's funny. And so they roll away the stone. And what does Jesus do? He begins to pray. Not necessarily because he had to, but he began to pray in order why, that they might know that Jesus is the one whom God the Father has sent to save them. He prays, and then what does he do? He preaches a three-word sermon. Lazarus, come out. And the very word of God incarnate speaks the word of God and Lazarus' body springs back to life and he gets up and he walks out of the tomb in that wonderful line of unbind him and let him go. Prayer coupled with preaching the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing other than the word of God can generate faith in our hearts, which is why Paul says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But the word only has power because of the Holy Spirit speaking through that word to the weary, the dead soul. It is only by the Holy Spirit of God that the dead hear the voice of God and can get up out of their tombs. This is why Paul writes to the Corinthians, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is why we should strive to preach God's words and not our own. 
This is true of all of us, whether we're in the pulpit or sitting around the table with our family at Easter brunch. Don't worry about technique or delivery, but preach not yourself, but Jesus Christ is Lord, because he's given you the words to speak, and those words are powerful and have the ability to change lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. But there is such a thing as preaching uncoupled from the Holy Spirit. Often it's uncoupled because it's not faithful to the Word of God. And so if our declaration of what we think might be the Word of God is not in congruence with His Word, of course the Holy Spirit is going to absent Himself from that preaching. I mean, here in Ezekiel 37, this is a rare instance where God withholds His Holy Spirit uh, from the preaching of the Word by Ezekiel, but only to make the point that it is the Holy Spirit of God that changes the hearts, not the preacher. And so even this morning, I pray, as John the Baptist did, that I might decrease and that he might increase, that you don't hear the words of Andrew Pearson, but that you hear the very words of life of Jesus Christ, who says to you, come out. Now, We have two characters that we can be in Ezekiel 37. We can either be Ezekiel or the dead bodies. You may be like Ezekiel, a believer, trusting in the Lord, but often the Lord will ask you, can these bones live? And you look at your life, and sometimes it looks like a battlefield. And you see these dry bones scattered about. And when the Lord asks you, can these bones live? Your response is, Lord, only you know, because I'm at the end of my rope. And I know that nothing I have in my own being can put these bones back together. And so, Lord, if you're going to bring resurrection and you're going to bring life, if you're going to heal this relationship, if you're going to get my life back on track, if you're going to put me together, it has to be you. Lord, only you know. And so come, Lord Jesus, come, Holy Spirit, and put me back together and resurrect this battle scene. Create in me a clean heart. Restore the joy that I've completely lost in my life, the loneliness that I feel. Come and visit me. Be with me. Inhabit me. But it may be that you're a dead body. It may be that you have sat under this very pulpit for years and heard faithful Bible preaching, but you've never experienced the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You've actually never crossed over and made that commitment to enter a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about some kind of second blessing, an added measure of the Holy Spirit, but I'm talking about hearing God's Word and yet having no life within you. You may be one of those that Ezekiel speaks of who look to have life, but still remain spiritually dead. 
I think of John Wesley and his brother Charles. They grew up in a Church of England home in 18th century England. His father was a clergyman. His mother, Susanna, a wonderful godly woman, led her children, numerous as they were, through Bible study daily. She evangelized them. John got old enough, went off to Oxford to study at Christ Church. He was ordained a clergyman in the Church of England. And even before that, he had started a club that did such charitable works at the university, such as visiting prisoners in prison, caring for widows and orphans, that it was called the Holy Club. And John Wesley was its leader. And then, after being ordained, John entered the mission field and went with Je General Oglethorpe on his second excursion uh, to Georgia. And while he was there, he began to have serious doubts about his salvation. They had plagued him for most of his life, and he couldn't find assurance that he was indeed the child of God by grace. And when he returned to England believing that his life and ministry was a total failure, John Wesley wrote this in his journal about his experience in Georgia. I went to America to convert the Indians, but, oh God, who shall convert me? He had grown up hearing the word of God and yet never experienced the life-giving Holy Spirit, had never experienced the assurance that he was a child of God. And so he, rather reluctantly searching for answers, went to a meeting on Aldersgate Street in London near St. Paul's, and he wrote this about his conversion experience in his journal. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Not only did that begin the new life for John Wesley, well, for the first time he was alive, but the great Wesleyan revival in England. And this very man who once knew not the Lord Jesus began to preach in Bristol to the coal miners coming out of the mines and the testimonials that were written in the day so they would come out with these blackened faces except for white streaks down their cheeks as they heard for the first time the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit quickened them and they came out of their tombs of sin. This morning, you may be a faithful Ezekiel Wondering, can God cause these bones to live? But this is the same God who went to such extremities to save you by coming and dwelling amongst us. The same God who was nailed to a cross and died for us. The same God who was raised from the dead on the third day and now ascends and reigns in heaven as king. That God's arm is never too short to save. With God, all things are possible. Are we praying with the spirit of expectancy in our own lives? Do we expect God to actually transform hearts here at the Advent? Do we believe that God's Holy Spirit is alive and well in this place and that our job is to pour out the word like water and pray that the Holy Spirit turns it into wine, that when people hear it with spiritual ears, that if you're one of those dead bodies that God can give you life through his son, Jesus Christ.
And like Wesley, your heart is not only strangely warm, but God gives this gift of faith by the power of the Holy Spirit in us so that when we hear the good news that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, our heart leaps. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. When you think upon what it took to save you, Jesus dying upon the cross, and you are moved to tears like those coal miners in Bristol, when you think of it, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. When you know that the tomb was empty on the third day, when the man Jesus got up from the grave, and your heart leaps like a lamb in spring, that is the work of of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning I entreat you to hear the voice of God working through his word by the power of the Spirit to come out and live and to be unbound and to know the freedom and the new life that is in him. Amen.